The 10th chapter of Mark uh, records uh, the series of events. We find Jesus once again telling his disciples what's going to happen. He's going to go to Jerusalem. <clears throat> he's going to be handed over to the chief priests and the religious leaders. And he's going to be condemned to death. He's going to die. But on the third day, he's going to rise again. It's not the first time he tells his disciples what's going to happen. But immediately following this, we have this series uh, recorded for us where two of his disciples demonstrate such um, a lack of understanding, a, a, a just a gross selfish ambition that creeps up in them because they turn to Jesus after he tells, he's saying these things to them and they say, Jesus, can, can we ask you to do something for us? Whatever we ask you to do, would you do it? And Jesus, I know he knew what they were going to ask, but, you know, he asked them, what is it that you want? And he goes, well, permit that we both can sit at your left and right hand in glory. And it's fascinating to me because after you have not only Jesus' teaching of serving and humility, but the example that Jesus laid out for for his disciples in this aspect of humility and service, and he just finishes telling them what's about to happen, this is what is foremost on their mind. How can we have a place of prominence, power, and prestige? How can we get people to recognize us? How can we be the greatest among all the disciples? Well, as you can imagine, that didn't go over too well with the other disciples, right? In fact, it tells us there that they were a little ticked off. They had some pretty negative feelings towards them. They were indignant, and we would as well, right? Imagine you're at work, right, and you're working harder than anyone else or just as hard, and your coworker tells the manager, go, I'm ready for a promotion. I think I should be in charge of the whole thing. And that's kind of what James and John, the sons of Zebedee, uh, were doing in this particular instance. They wanted glory for themselves, Ignoring the example of our Lord Jesus, ignoring all that he told them about these things and what he was about, uh, at the expense of the other disciples, they wanted to be seen as the greatest. Now, Jesus takes this opportunity, as he always does, to continue to teach, right? And he teaches them uh, a, a very important lesson here. Not calling his disciples to prominence, power, and prestige, but calling them to sacrifice, to suffering, and to service. He tells them, see this desire you have to be the greatest, to be seen, to have a claim, to be known by others, to lord over other people, to be an authority over people. That's not the way of the kingdom. That's the way of the world. That's what the Gentiles do. They want to lord over everyone else. But he says, not so with you. This isn't how it's supposed to be with you. And then he lays out the kingdom values. The way up is down. The path of exaltation is by way of abasement. You, you want to be the greatest of all? You've got to be the servant of all. You, you want to be the leader? You have to be the slave of all. How's that for challenging, right, our our selfish ambitions, our desires to be in charge and to lord over other people or, or have people look up to us like we're something awesome and amazing. But why does Jesus tell them this? This is not the way of the world. This is the way of the kingdom. And the reason he tells them that is because they needed to only look at him. And he tells them the son of man came not to be served but to serve. Stop there for a moment and think of who's saying this. This is the Lord of glory. This is the King of glory. This is the King of the universe. This is the creator of all things. He's saying, I didn't come to be served by you. Though arguably, he's the only one who's worthy to be served by all. He said, I've come to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. What is that example that's set for us in terms of service and humility? It's the example of our Lord Jesus Christ himself, who came not to be served, but to serve everyone. 
And the challenge in the church today, especially in our climate and our culture, and I'm speaking in generalities here. I'm, I'm thankful this is not the spirit of our church or what I see in our church. But a challenge and a problem that there is in the church in general is that so many come to the church or approach the church expecting to be served and few actually do the serving. So we have that statistic that tells us that less than 20% of the people in the church do all Almost 100% of the acts of service or the works of the ministry of the church of Jesus Christ. The church in general is filled with demanding consumers who want to have it their way and have their preferences and needs met. But what we have from our Lord and what we have from the teachings and example of our Lord is that serving others is the mark of Christian conduct. The sad thing is that mark isn't one that many Christians want to bear. And it doesn't hold a place of high value for many professing Christians. Far too many have the attitude of James and John, that selfish ambition. Serve me. I want to be the greatest. So we come to this section in 1 Timothy here. Uh, it's where Paul is giving instructions to Timothy on how the church is to conduct herself, how the church is to behave because the church is God's households. And because it's God's house, it's God's rules. That's what we need to be. And, and, and we think of these aspects of what the church is supposed to be about and who's supposed to lead the church. And we don't approach it from a biblical perspective. We come to it with worldly ideas. I said this before, what what dominates in the church today in terms of how a church is supposed to function or how a church is to be structured and led, it's we look to the world, we look to corporate America, we look to businesses, we look to successful military leaders, and we say, okay, what is succeeding out there, let's bring that into the church and, and lay that on the church as the operating system of how the church is supposed to run. But the church is not a business. The church is not a corporation. There is nothing in the world that looks like or can reflect what the church is because ultimately the church is God's household. It is the family of God. It is not a business. So we don't look to the world. Not saying you can't learn from principles from those out there. Don't misunderstand that. But our cues, our instructions, the principles for which we look to in terms of what this is supposed to be looking like and what we're supposed to do has got to come from God's word first and foremost. And so that's what we find here in these pastoral epistles. And what we find here is that serving is an important aspect of what we do as a church. Following the sacrificial uh, service of our Lord, that's what's expected of every believer of every follower of Jesus Christ. And serving is so important that what we find enshrined in Scripture here is that there's actually an official role of serving, which is called the office of deacon. And that's what we're going to look at today. Last week, we examined the qualifications of those who are to lead the church, the elders, the bishops, or the pastors. And now we're going to look at the qualifications and examine those of those who would occupy the office of deacon in the church. So now we're going to read once again the qualifications for elders and then the qualifications for deacons. I want you to see these 13 verses are a unified whole. They are connected, even though we're kind of covering it in two parts here. Uh, but I want you to see that all of this fits together. All of the qualifications, the moral and spiritual qualifications, apply to both. And even if it's on one list and not the other, you can assume Paul meant. All of these things are for both of those offices. All right? Well, hear the words of the Lord. 1 Timothy chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. 
For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. These are the words of the Lord. Following on the heels of what we looked at last week, the that of the qualifications of the office of elders. And we said elders are the, those are qualified men who are the overseers of the local church, also called bishops and pastors. The word for elders here in First Timothy is episcopus, where we get the word bishop. But the other terms are synonymous, elders and overseers. Elders is more the title. Bishop or overseeing is more the function of what elders do they oversee, they care for, they lead, they feed, they protect the flock of God. And Paul writes that those who aspire to the office of elders actually desire something that is noble. It is noble to want to care for the flock of God, to instruct and teach God's people, to protect them from false teaching and from the wolves, and to help them grow in godliness and nurture them in Christ Jesus. And he then gives a list of qualifications that form, in essence, what is the job description of the elder. I said it last week. The job description is the qualifications. The character of the elder is the job. The individual should be a person worthy of others imitating. If you were to ask someone, what is it What does it mean to be a Christian? You should be able to point to the elders of the church and say, just watch them. Observe their life. Observe their conduct. Observe how they are. Observe how they treat other people. Observe how they uh, orchestrate the issues of the faith. And over time, you're going to get a pretty decent idea of what it means to be a Christian. But as I said these week, these qualifications for an elder really are the qualifications every believer should have. These marks are something that every Christian should aspire. If we are growing in godliness, if the fruit of the Spirit is maturing in our life, if we are pursuing Jesus, then everyone, man or woman, should be exhibiting these moral and spiritual qualities. Amen? Amen. All right. So this is what is expected of all of us, right? But especially what we need to demand of those who are going to be leading and teaching in God's household. And the same is going to be true for what we're going to look at today in terms of the office of deacon. So he's continuing now with the instructions for those called to the office of deacons. And look what he says. He writes, deacons likewise. What does that likewise tell us? Well, likewise means it's connected to Exactly what just came before it, which is why we wanted to read all of that together. Deacons like or in the same manner as elders. Again, so that idea is that the same expectation of high moral and spiritual character of of the elders also applies to deacons. And just like the elders, the deacons must also be examined. In terms of these qualifications and these qualities... The, the church should be able to take the individual and match those qualities and qualifications and say, uh-huh, I see that in them, or I don't. And if you don't, well, then they would not be qualified for the office, okay? So deacons, likewise, they must be tested, they must be examined, and they must be approved. Well, what's a deacon? That's a funny term. We don't really use it a whole lot today. We we use other terminology maybe in the church, directors, coordinators, administrators, 
you know, ministry leaders. We have a whole, whole bunch of terms, but what's a deacon? You may have come from a church that has a deacon board or, or deacon committees, you know, especially if you come from a mainline church, those are going to have, you know, uh, deacon committees over ministries or uh, the deacon committee or board over the facilities, over the Sunday school program, uh, uh, over the school if they have one, or the women's ministry or the men's ministry. Uh, So there's a whole bunch of people, but in essence, these are the people that run the church. In fact, in many churches, it's it's, it's very upside down. The elders aren't the ones who rule or lead the church. It's actually the deacons. And many deacons also referred to as demons in some places um, because it rhymes and it's kind of how they act, can run many pastors away from the church. They're mean-spirited and controlling. And some of you may have come from church environments like that where the deacons kind of ruled the roost and what they said when. A lot of churches, again, the deacons are over everything, right? So the deacon committee has to meet and determine what color carpets or what kind of paint or what kind of toilet paper are we going to purchase? Is it going to be that nice quilted soft kind that's soft on your skin? Makes you feel like you're on a cloud? Or we're going to get that cheap one-ply transparent thing that shreds in your hand when you use it. And usually it's the latter because it's the cheapest thing, right? So... Deacons take a lot of different forms and and ways to the way they manage the church in a lot of different uh, in environments, you know. Uh, and and fortunately, there are some of you who probably have had some very good experiences in churches where uh, the deacons were good, honorable, and respectable people, and they set good examples. But whatever your experience is, I want you to kind of wipe that from your mind uh, and and let's look to God's word for clarity about the office of deacon, the role of deacon, um, and maybe try to get a different perspective and understanding here so we get to, to know what it's about. The, uh, the word deacon, right, comes from the noun form of the Greek word diakonos. It's where we get that transliterated word deacon. And it simply means servant or minister, servant or minister. And that noun form is used dozens of times in the New Testament writing, but it's only translated four times as deacon. Everywhere else that noun is used outside of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and uh, Philippians uh, 1.1, that noun form is translated as servant or minister. But four times here, especially in the passage we're looking at today, is translated as deacon. So how do we know when one is meant as deacon and one is meant as servant or minister, well, the context of the passage is going to tell us that. It's going to give us some indication. Is it speaking in a general sense about someone who serves or ministers, or is it telling us about someone who serves in some official or leadership capacity? All right? So that's why we need to uh, take time to study and examine what God's Word says. Now, again, in Philippians 1.1, we have uh, another passage, just one verse, that uh, speaks prescriptively about the office of deacon, all right? And this is in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. In fact, it's addressed from both, from both Paul and Timothy writing to the church. And so Philippians 1.1 says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, that word servants, that term servants, the noun is not diakonos, it is doulos, which means bondservant or slave. So Paul and Timothy are addressing themselves as slaves. Paul and Timothy, the slaves of Christ Jesus, and now he's addressing it to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers, the episcopos, and the deacons, the diakonos. Episcopos and deacons are singled out here from the saints. Pay attention to that. It's important. Normally, we find a letter written just to the church at large, just to blanket it to the church. It's to all the saints. It's to all the members. This letter would have been read in front of the church. But Paul and Timothy are writing to the saints and the leadership of the church, the officers of the church also, officers and members, elders, deacons, bishops, deacons, overseers, okay? 
So this notion sometimes that we have, I said this last week, that the early church didn't have some organized leadership structure, that this thing of pastors didn't emerge till centuries later. There was no such thing as bishops or, or some hierarchy of leadership in the church. That didn't emerge till, you know, three, four, five hundred years later. That's ignorance. We're clearly shown two very clear prescriptive passages that there is such a thing as the office of elders or overseers and the office of deacons in the church. And in Paul's letter here to Philippi, he's saying, saints, all the saints, with overseers and deacons. So just a few years after Pentecost, we see the appointment of elders and deacons in the local church. Now, Having said that, we do not have a lot of clarity about all of the tasks that deacons in the early church performed. We know that the elders were the the teachers, the preachers, the ones who taught authoritatively. They were the ones charged with the protection and care of the flock of God. Uh, But we don't have clear instruction like this is what a deacon does. But I'm going to take you to a passage here that's going to kind of without using the term deacon, is going to give us some general idea of what deacons do, even though these people are not called deacons. But what we have is kind of the prototype of the diaconate, a a prototype of what deacons' responsibilities are. So why don't you turn with me to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. It's a familiar story, I think, to many of us. Uh, But let me read these first seven verses uh, that kind of lay the uh, foundation of this. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So what was happening here? It says, now in these days, well, in these days it refers to the founding of the church, in the days post-Pentecost, and, and, and the apostles were doing signs and wonders, and many were being added uh, to the church, so the church had grown quite large by this time. Some estimate at the time of this writing, the church in Jerusalem numbered some seven to 8,000 people. It's a mega church, right, without huge building and budget, okay? So they were increasing in number, but what happened here? Conflict. Conflict in the early... That didn't take long, did it? <laughs> Wherever you have people, <laughs> going to have conflict, going to have tension, going to have complaints arising here. And what was the complaint that was presented here? Well, the complaint here was that e- even though the church was probably doing its best to take care of the physical needs of the poor and of the widows, there were some, this group called the Hellenists, who were feeling neglected. Or feeling that maybe partiality was shown to the Jewish widows. Now, Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews, but really Greek-speaking Jews who grew up in the Greek culture. So they were more Grecian than they were Hebraic. At least that's how they were perceived. So you had the ethnic Jews, and then you had these that were immersed in Greek culture. They all came to faith in Christ, and they're part of the church, and now the Hellenists were starting to think that their widows were being neglected. We don't know if that was true or not. The indication here isn't that that's exactly what was happening, but for sure they were grieved and and felt that this was taking place. And that was, uh, this complaint was lodged and brought to the apostles, okay? Um, So what do the apostles do here? They don't give a solution, do they? The apostles don't say, okay, here's how we're going to start the food distribution. We want to make sure the Hellenists go first, 
and then the Jews, you know. No, they don't prescribe a solution here. They lay this back on the church and say, here's what you guys are going to do. You're going to choose for yourself seven men. Now, again, they call the whole church together. I don't know if all thousands of them showed up, but I'm sure it was a great number, right? And saying the, the, the needs are great, you know, so this is far beyond the scope of maybe what they could do. But they say, they say at any rate, choose for yourself seven men. And he actually, they actually give them qualifications, just what we're looking at in First Timothy. It wasn't just any, just seven people. And he says seven men with these qualifications, right? Because what's going on here? The apostles are saying we can't be distracted. We can't be distracted from what we've been called to do. We can't be distracted from our ministerial priorities. It's not that they were above serving. It's that they had a higher priority to attend to, which was what? The preaching and ministry of the word. Prayer and the ministry of the word. This is what the apostles were commissioned by Jesus Christ to do. But now they're having to deal with this this, this need, this complaint that is presented to them that there is an aggrieved party who feels like their physical needs are not being met. So here's how they're to handle the problem. You call these men. Recognize from among your own numbers seven men who meet these spiritual and moral qualifications. They've got to have a good reputation among the saints, which is what we've been looking at in terms of elders and deacons. They need to be men full of what? The Holy Spirit. Not business acumen. Not worldly wisdom. Full of the Holy Spirit. And full of wisdom. Right? There's qualifications <clears throat> that they had to meet. And the church was happy with this. They're like, you know what? That sounds good to us as well. So we don't know what happened. We don't know if they had a vote. We don't know if they said, let's pick these names out of a hat. It doesn't tell us. How they arrived at selecting these seven, but they do. And then the apostles pray for them and set them in office. Now, you don't see anywhere in this reading the word deacon, the term deacon, the noun deacon is not referred to these seven men. But the verb form is used, diakonia, is used here a couple of times. Wherever you see the word serve and you see the word ministry, is the verb diakonia, all right? So basically, here's what the apostles are saying. It's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word to deacon tables. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the deaconing of the word. They're saying, we can't serve that way. That's a distraction. This is how we're supposed to be serving. But you choose seven men to do that serving, the waiting on the tables and the food distribution, and take care of the physical needs of the poor and the widows. We've got to get back to what we've been called to do, our ministry of prayer and the ministry of the word. So these seven appointed were godly qualified servants that the people knew. These were people who knew how to serve. They were examples of what it looked like to serve God's people, and they were committed to serving. In fact, one is singled out as being a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, all right? This, this was not just an, an average Joe here, okay? This was, this was someone that was esteemed highly by the church of Jesus Christ there in Jerusalem. Just as an aside, it's fascinating that the seven men that were chosen were met, seven men with Greek names, Think about that for a moment. The problem was with the Hellenists, right? They're the ones who bring the complaint. And the whole church, Hellenists and Jews together said, you know what? Let's choose these seven men. And they have Greek names. So they didn't want, to, they didn't want the Hellenists to feel, you know, underrepresented. And said, so let's choose these deacons that are also Grecian. And the church, what kind of love was there, right? Looking out for one another in the church there. Right, so these men are charged with assisting the apostles in what? Well, in these practical matters. Caring for the poor and widows, distributing the food and resources, and ministering to the physical and material needs uh, of the congregation so that the apostles could focus on their area of ministry. What's the result of this? I love Acts 6-7. It's one of my favorite verses in Acts. The gospel continues to increase. It continues to advance. Why? Well, the apostles are doing what they're supposed to be doing. 
And what happens is the numbers of the disciple multiply greatly. Why? Because the church is functioning as it's, it's supposed to function. And there's qualified men now leading in the care and the distribution of the resources of the church. So, so no one is falling through the cracks. And then we're told that what? Many priests, right, became obedient to the faith. I mean, this is, a, this is a beautiful picture of when everyone's functioning the way they're supposed to. The apostles are doing what they're supposed to. The deacons doing what they're supposed to. The church functioning as it's supposed to, right? It, it thrives and flourishes. So the passage shows us how deacons are responsible for supporting the ministry of the word. Think about what they're doing there. The apostles are saying, here's what we need to do, preaching in the ministry of the word. They're supporting that how? By alleviating that burden from the apostles. That weight of responsibility that is on the apostles' shoulders ultimately for the church. Now there are those who are shouldering that load together with the apostles so that the ministry of the word can continue to go forth unhindered. These men are taking care of the physical aspects of the body. Now, we don't know how they did this. How that problem got fixed, we know not. But because they're men of wisdom, no doubt they strategically organized the most efficient way to make sure everyone was taken care of. Seven men could not take care of thousands of people. So it's not like they were doing all the work themselves. No, they were probably mobilizing the church to continue the works, the good works of the social works of service here to the poor and to the widows. So those who serve in the office of deacon, like these first seven, are assistants to the elders through their role of in caring for the physical and material aspects of the church they help shoulder the responsibility of the care of the church and take that pressure off of the elders so what so they can go on vacation no so they can exercise their responsibilities for the care of the church right which is the spiritual needs of god's people and the oversight of the church elders serve the church through leading And deacons lead the church through serving, okay? Elders lead the ministry. Deacons help execute the ministry, leading the rest of the church in the work. That's basically what elders do. What that looks like, I think it's different for every church because every church has different needs, okay? So deacons serve the elders so that they can lead, and they lead the church through their service, mobilizing God's people to do the good works. Now, I've said it already. All Christians are called to serve. It's what we do. It's the example of our Lord. It's the example set by our Lord that night, right? When he gathered with his disciples, it says that he took a towel, wrapped it around his waist, and what did he do? He washed the disciples' feet. Mark, bring me those basins. I'm going to wash. <laughs> I promise you, you're never going to see a foot washing here. <laughs> But I've been part of those churches, and some of you have as well, right? But he's setting an example. It was not something prescriptive that we're all supposed to do, but it's the example of serving. Again, Jesus humbles himself, takes on the menial role of the servant. Who washed the feet of guests in a home? Servants. So he's setting this example. I'm here to serve. He wraps the towel. He gets on his hands and knees, and he washes those stinky, dung-filled feet. Of the disciples. You know they stepped on camel poop. As they were walking around. Dusty and dirty. Gnarly and smelly. You're just visualizing it right. Scents may be coming to you now. He humbles himself. To serve his disciples. And he's saying. Guess what guys. This is what you're supposed to do for one another. This is what you're supposed to do. That's our example. We see it also in Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and 12, where Paul describes the ministry gifts God has given the church for its building up. He gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to what end? Verse 12, to equip the saints for what? The work of ministry. Guess what that is? Diaconias, service for building up the body of Christ. In 1 Peter 4, 10, Peter writes, as each has received a gift, use it to serve. Guess what word that is? That verb form, diaconeo, to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. 
That's what we do. We serve one another. We are most like our Lord when we serve one another. That's the example he left for us. So why do we need the office of deacon? Well, again, I've stated already, it depends on the needs of the church. As a church grows, a larger congregation gets, the more organized service needs to be made so that everyone can be taken care of. So no one falls through the crack. And that requires some leadership. That requires people mobilizing volunteers, mobilizing others to serve, making sure if a need is presented, that it is taken care of. That's what we do. We're a family. That's what families do, right? You take care of the needs of family members. At least I hope you do. Right? There's a need presented in your home where the family comes around and takes care of that need. That's what a loving family does, and that's what the church is, right? Deacons are servants among servants, setting an example of service, helping to coordinate service, mobilizing the congregation to service. And the needs of the congregation determine not just how many deacons a church needs, but do any of those deacons need to be specialized? Like if a church has large facilities, typically you will need deacons to oversee the facilities, right? But a church that doesn't have facilities doesn't need necessarily deacons over facilities, right? So we need wisdom in in terms of how to shape the diaconate in a church, and it's based on the needs. Smaller church has less needs for the formal office of a deacon. Like, I praise God, we have so many servant hearts in in this room and in this church, people who step up and serve. But we're going to be looking at formalizing this over the coming months, and it's based on an assessment of what needs we have present in our church and how can they be taken care of. Uh, As really the only staff member of Sent Church, as you can imagine, the overwhelming majority of meeting many times the physical needs of the church falls on me. But I thank God I do have some other men that I lean on heavily that love God and love his people, so they step up to take care of many things. So we'll be looking at that in the future. But again, the needs of the church will dictate that. Now let's move quickly here. And we're not going to spend a lot of time in this section because, again, we covered a lot of this last week. But just like the elders, the character is the job description. Character comes before competency. Many churches, when they look for elders, they're like, who can do the job? But Paul says that's not the first thing to look at. It's not the job, it's, it's the person, right? It's the man, it's the individual. It's, let's look at their character first. Let's look, do they meet these qualifications here? And even though the elders and deacons have different roles and responsibilities, again, all of the qualifications of elders apply to deacons, okay? The roles are different, the responsibilities are different, but not the character qualities, okay? So how are deacons selected? Well, let's just look at verse 10 first. Paul writes, let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless, right? Tested means to be examined, to be approved. It's already assumed that these individuals are already serving. They're already serving God's people. They're proven themselves to be people who know how to serve, are committed to serve, are already serving God's people. So they're an example to the flock. People already are looking to them as as those who, who meet the qualifications of leaders. They are of deacon material, let's just call it that, because they can see their examples. Their ministry is exemplary. Okay? So how do we assess that? Well, like the elders, that takes time. The reason we do not appoint leaders hastily or set elders in office hastily or deacons is you can't tell in a month. You can't tell this over a few months. It takes time to watch an individual and in how they serve, how they respond. Are they people that can be trusted? Like when they say they're going to do something, do they do it? Now, a lot of people say, yes, I'll do this. And when the time comes, where are they? <whistles> Crickets. But the person who meets these qualifications isn't like that. They already have demonstrated, proven their character. They prove themselves blameless. Now, blameless does not mean without sin, all right? We know that is no one, okay? But blameless in terms of their righteousness, in terms of how they conduct themselves and their Christian character, they're walking in repentance, they're trusting in Christ, and they have an exemplary um, uh, ministry lifestyle before the flock of God, 
okay? And this is where the congregation is involved. These are individuals that are known to the church, so they'll have a say whether they meet these qualifications or not. Uh, Deacons are people who are proven problem spotters and problem solvers. A lot of people with ideas, but I don't have as many people who will roll up their sleeves and just take care of it. A lot of people who complain, but not those who just say, I've got the solution, here's what I'm going to do. Okay? And so those who are looking at to the office of deacons are not just problem spotters, but problem solvers. Okay? It's just what you do. You just when, when you're in tune to the needs of others, you're not looking for someone else to solve that. You're looking for how you can solve that. Because that's the heart of a servant. That's what Jesus did for us. He didn't say, there's a need. It's a spiritual need. Who's going to die for him? No, no, he did that. He laid his own life down for us. All right? Uh, And then he says, after that, they can be appointed to the office of deacon. Again, nothing is prescribed here on how that process comes about. That is something we have freedom as elders to be able to design and shape for the local church. Okay? Uh, But popularity, need, the influence of the individual are not the deciding factors in the selection of deacons. They must be tested and proven based on these moral and spiritual qualifications. So let's look at them rapid fire here, okay? These must be, remember, this is what Paul says, so take note of that. These must be these things. They must be these things. They're not optional. They're the non-negotiables, okay, for consideration and appointment. They must be dignified. The word dignified in the Greek is semnos. It means serious. That doesn't mean they can't have a sense of humor, right? It just means there's a sobriety about their personality. Everything's not a joke with them. They know how to be serious. Serious people respect them. Uh, so they're respectable. They're held in high esteem in regards to their character, in regards to their conduct. They're not double-tongued, okay? It means that they're not speaking out of both sides of their mouth. They don't say one thing but and then tell someone else something different, right? They mean what they say. They say what they mean. They're authentic. They're not hypocrites uh, concerning their life. Um, again, when you tell them, when they say they're going to do something, they, they do it. They don't come up with a dozen excuses for why they didn't. You know, they can be trusted. They can be counted on. Not addicted to much wine. <clears throat> again, this goes back to what we looked at last week for the elders, where it says they're, they're not to be drunkards, right? This simply means not that they can't have a drink, okay? There's nothing in Scripture that says drinking alcohol is sinful. Not going to find that. But drunkenness... Yes, that's a big time sin. Why? It shows you don't have a lack of, uh, you have a lack of self-control. You don't have self-mastery. You're mastered by your urges and your impulses, and you don't have mastery over these individuals. If you don't have self-control, you're not qualified for leadership uh, in the church. Right? person who self-medicates with alcohol cannot be sober-minded, are not going to be thinking clearly, are not going to be dealing with situations clearly. They're not to be greedy for dishonest gain. Again, this goes back to what we even looked at in verse 3. Not a lover of money. A deacon has to be someone that can be trusted with the resources of the church because part of what they're going to be doing is managing the resources of the church. So they have to be trustworthy. They can't love money. How many of you heard stories or been part of churches where the church administrator has embezzled you know, money from the church? You know, because there was a lack of transparency or accountability. And, you know, every so often, you know, they're dipping their hands in the, in the pot and patting their own account. Why does that happen? Greedy. Greedy for dishonest gain. Lovers of money. A person who has those tendencies is not qualified for leadership in the church. Not qualified to serve in the office of deacon if they're going to be tempted by greed. Then in verse 9, we have a spiritual qualification here. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, this should go without saying, but I'm going to say it. A deacon must be a believer. And I know in some churches, the deacons didn't look like believers and didn't act like them. I've got a few names rolling around in my mind right now. You know, you're like, what? The deacon really was a demon, you know. But he's, look, at, look at that. Must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They have to be believers. 
they have to be people regenerated by the Spirit of God. They have to believe the gospel. They have to hold fast to the, to the truth of the gospel, to the teachings of Christ, to the teachings of the apostles. They have to be of the word. They have to know the word. Again, their responsibility isn't going to be the authoritative teaching of the word, but they need to know God's word. I think of Stephen as a great example of this. He was waiting on tables. He was in charge of the food distribution. But the dew was mighty in the word. As the first martyr of the church gave a stirring sermon. He knew the word of God. So it's not that you're going to be teaching. But you may be called upon in a moment to teach. You might be called upon to to counsel and encourage. And for sure together with the elders. You have a responsibility to safeguard the the flock of God. and, 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 And safeguard the people of God against false teaching and false teachers. So you've got to be able to hold fast to the truth. Now, Paul writes also now with qualifications for the wife of a deacon. Now we see a little departure from what he wrote to the elders because he doesn't say anything about the elders' wives. I guess they can do whatever they want to do. No. Remember what I said. These are connected. Now, I don't want to go down a a rabbit trail here. This is one of these hotly contested passages whether he's talking about wives or is he talking about women here. Uh, It's an odd grammatical change in the passage here. Uh, So is he talking now about women deacons here? Now, I wasn't going to spend a whole lot of time addressing this, but I'm I'm going to. Because people are mixed in this area. We know that the office of elders is exclusively for qualified men. But the grammatical structure of this passage is a little bit different. And men I truly respect, theologians I respect, see this two different ways here. Yes and no. Can men be, is it only for men or or can women be deacons? And I have to tell you, I have mixed feelings about it myself. This is an area I am still uh, working through. I met with Eric this week and we were talking it over and I was telling him, you know, I, 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 I see a place. My problem is, the way the role of deacons has been done largely in the church, deacons have a lot of influence, authority, and power. And in that respect, I would say that is not for a woman. Because if we've established that what Paul said is that women cannot teach and exercise authority over man, yet you place women in a role that Scripture has prohibited because they have great authority and influence over the entire church. The way that that has been done, I would say, is an error. In that case, I would say no. But are there areas that women excel in serving that that is not the case? For sure, I do see that. Uh, In fact, most of the early church fathers referred to deaconesses in the church. Uh, It seemed to be an established practice uh, in the early church. Uh, the uh, early church fathers like Chrysostom and others talked about deaconesses in the church. Uh, Phoebe in Romans chapter 16, a lot of scholars think that she was a deaconess in the church, even though it does not refer to her by that term at all, but it refers to her as a servant, and Paul lauds and applauds uh, and her to be recognized for the faithful servant that she is. <clears throat> so there's a lot of... Um, Uh, I think a little bit of freedom that elders can exercise here, but we need great wisdom to make sure that we're not violating the clear injunctions of Scripture. All right? I know that may not clear it up fully for you, but I did want you to understand our position uh, as as it relates to that and how that may play out in the near future when we look at organizing and establish a diaconate here at Scent Church. If you have any questions about that, I'll be glad to entertain those questions. through a false email account that I will give you later. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. I'll be glad, to, I'll be glad to talk to you about that. Okay, so now we have qualifications. We're, we're going to keep with the spirit of what it says here, the wife of a deacon, okay? And again, this applies to both. And, and this is important because no one called to ministry if they're married is doing this by themselves. It is assumed the wife is going to be serving right alongside her husband. My wife serves right alongside with me. I'm the one called to the office of an elder, but that doesn't mean she has no involvement whatsoever. Okay? There are qualifications. So when we look at the man for eldership, we're also looking at the woman. 
If a deacon's married, we're also going to be looking at their spouse, right? Why? Okay, she must also be dignified. The man's to be dignified. Well, she needs to be dignified as well. How terrible would it be if he's respected and held in high esteem, but nobody wants anything to do with their wife, okay? She's not respected. She's not dignified. No one holds her in high esteem. That's a problem. It's going to create a problem for any man in ministry if their wife isn't on board and and is exemplifying these character qualities, all of them, all right? She must not be a slanderer. Guess what that word in the Greek for slanderer is? Diabolos. You know what word we get from that? Devil. She must not be a devil. No, but she must not be a slanderer. Why? The devil is the slanderer. He is the accuser, right? She cannot slander other people. She cannot attack the reputation of others. She cannot be a gossiper or a backbiter. She must be sober-minded. Again, that means clear-headed, right? Uh, Level-headed. She is in control of her temper, and she's in control of her tongue, okay? That's what it means to be sober-minded. She must be faithful in all things. She's also reliable. She's also strong in her faith in Christ Jesus, right? This is a woman who compliments her husband well, okay? And she sets in, just like her husband, is also setting an example for the saints to follow. You can say, you can imitate her also because she's exemplifying uh, these high moral and spiritual qualifications. Okay, next is the qualification that speaks about the home front. The home front, again, is an important indicator of a person's fitness for leadership in the church. Verse 12, let deacons be... Each the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Okay? Again, this, this, this phrase means one woman man. This is someone who is faithful to his wife. He's not making a statement here about only married people can serve in this office or what about someone who's divorced. These are not statements about that. This is, this is a sexual ethic, sexual fidelity and purity that is in view here. A man who is faithful to his wife, can be trusted to be faithful in God's household and with God's people. And he manages his children and household well. Again, the home is the little church. Okay, How one manages their home and how they shepherd the little flock that God has given them is an indicator of how they will manage God's household. We talked at length about that last week. You can review there if you didn't hear last week's message. But an individual here who is a tyrant in their home, a bully in their home, always yelling at their wife, always yelling at their kids, always having to be right and never repenting, is not someone who is qualified for the office of elder or deacon in the church of Jesus Christ. And lastly, Paul writes a word of encouragement to those who serve as deacons. They'll receive a reward. Now, he doesn't say the elders get a reward. I'm kind of bummed about that. But no. It goes hand in hand, okay? Just because he doesn't mention it doesn't mean there isn't a benefit and a reward there as well, right? Look at verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. There's a great reward for anyone who serves God's people well. And I think this goes beyond those just with the office of deacon. I think it's for all who serve. God's people well, who do it well with the right heart, who do it good, there is a twofold reward, one that's before man and one that is before God. The first is they'll gain a good standing. That word standing means rank or step, okay? They'll gain a good rank. What does that mean? It means that they're going to be esteemed highly by the people. They're going to be highly regarded by the church for their faithful service. They have a good reputation among the saints. And again, they are going to be an example that others see as worthy of emulating. And gaining a good standing means that their influence in the church and with the people of God will grow as well. When people know that you are faithfully serving God and you're faithfully serving the church and the people, guess what? You will have influence with them. You'll have influence with them. When you speak, your words will actually mean something to them. Have, have a gravitas, have a weight that others respond to. But when they don't feel that from you, they won't listen to you. 
And there's many who want authority without even walking out these character qualities. There's many who want positions of leadership because they have a need, right? But they just want to use people so that people will respect them. That's not how this works. You have to be respected before you're put in a position of authority and leadership in God's church. That may work in the world, right, where you can, you know, kiss behinds and you can smooth talk your way and, and, and you know, do all kinds of fleshly things to, to get promoted. That's not how it works in the church of Jesus Christ. This is a family. God's house, God's rules, right? The second is reward is great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I love that. If you serve well, if you serve God faithfully and you serve the people of God faithfully, you will grow in confidence and assurance in your faith. That word confidence is courage and boldness. There will be a courage in your faith. You'll have confidence in in speaking about the faith. Why? Because something is being worked out in you as you serve God's people. Something beautiful is happening inside your heart where your faith is growing and your faith is exploding because you are serving well. Beautiful rewards. As I said earlier, I praise God we have many faithful people serving our church family. And they don't need a title to do it. They don't need a position to do it. They just love God and they love his people. And we need more people like that. We need more people in our church to step up and serve. There's so many areas of need. Not only are there needs in the ministries and the things we need to pull off the gathering of the saints here on Sunday. And, 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 and again, I'm calling our church family to serve. You can see Jesse. You can see Todd. You can see Tiffany. We got, we got areas for you. We need everybody in this church. As I shared earlier, any partnership and ministry opportunities we have outside of what we do on a Sunday, we'd like to see our, 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 our city groups expand, and we need people who are qualified to be able to do that as well. So we need you. We need deacons. We need people to serve. We need people who are actively looking for opportunities to meet the needs of the saints here. In an unofficial capacity, a need is presented as you're talking or praying to someone else, and you just say, you know what? I can take care of that. I don't need to call Dan for that. I'll handle that. I can help him with that. I can go to their house and help them with this. We, we need others to step up in this area. I look at it, and I'm going to read this last passage <clears throat> uh, because I see a beautiful picture of, of how Paul recognizes those with exemplary service. The end of 1 Corinthians in chapter 16, verses 15 and 18. These are the closing comments Paul makes here. And he writes, Now I urge you, brothers, you know. Again, this is important, right? You, these, he's not talking about people that they don't know. He says, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they... Listen to this, have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these. Who do they be subject to? Those who devote themselves to the service of the saints. And to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to these people. Not the high and mighty, not the ones who want great positions of power, but to those who devote themselves to the servants of the service of the saints. Guess what that word service is? Yeah. To the deaconing of the saints. Recognize these people. Give recognition to them. I love that Paul is excited about getting to see these precious brothers who devoted themselves to the service of the saints. He says they refresh his spirit. How refreshing it is those who do serve the saints of God. They don't look for anything in return. They're serving with the right heart motivation for love of God and love for the people of God. There is nothing more refreshing than that. There is a beauty. There is a nobility in serving the saints. And Paul says they are worthy of honor and recognition. These are the ones to laud and hold in high esteem. Why? Because they most reflect our Savior. 
they most look like the example that our Lord set for us. So I want you to look around. I want you to observe. I want you to pay attention to those who serve. And those who serve well, encourage them. Encourage those who exemplify the characteristics of servanthood. Exemplify the qualifications that we have been looking at here. My prayer is that we would be a church full of people who are devoted to the service of the saints. Devoted to serving God. Devoted to to serving the saints of God. And as we faithfully strive to do this, may that bring glory to God. And may we have our own Acts 6-7 experience here. Where the word of God increases. The gospel advances. Where the disciples multiply greatly. And many come to the obedience of the faith in Christ Jesus.